Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel. Training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Hey everybody, Rich and I are back. We did a pre-Tahoe podcast and now we're doing a post-Tahoe podcast. Rich, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm not suffering from altitude sickness. I'm not uh, suffering from alcoholism. Everything went pretty well. No, that's great to hear. So let's get right into it. All right. Well, as we discussed before we went live, I think the thing that stands out in my mind you know, when you're on your way home after an event like this, you kind of pause and you try to draw recollection over the things that seem to stand out in your mind the most. And aside from what most people would expect, how well the, the top athletes performed, how heinous the course was, the thing that really kind of jumps out at me was the sheer brutality of the event. It seemed to me, and forgive me, for those of you that feel like I might kind of be dissing you a bit, but there's a lot of people that were in that event that had no business being there. It was just too tough an event, and there was too many people that were underprepared for what was to unfold. And at the finish line, I stood there and watched people bouncing off the railing, quads just shot, limping, swollen ankles, just beat down. And the thing that jumped out in me, being a coach and having worked with so many athletes that actually were even competing there, that there were so many people that just took a shellacking there. Well, that was kind of what jumped out at me at first. Yeah, you know, it's tough. Uh, I think also with what they've done in the last month or so, just extending Tahoe that extra distance, you know, increasing the grip obstacles that much more, such as monkey in the middle, it doesn't lend itself to, you know, the faint of heart. And then obviously just going into preparation for the year, kind of going back to what we said beforehand about a lot of these people might have raced, you know, two weekends ago or one weekend ago. So some of them, you know, haven't come in fresh. And then you look at the winner, Cody. I mean, Cody, I think, has only done two races the whole year, you know. So I think uh, you're exactly right in terms of the, the byproduct of making sure your training protocol is well versed to be prepared to tackle something like Tahoe because it's not one of those races where you can do on the weekend and then just feel good about doing it, you know? Right. And I think a lot of people were really taken by surprise where even if they qualified for the event, it's just such a tough, tough event. And honestly, I didn't feel like altitude was that big a factor. 
I don't think too many people came away from it feeling like that they were winded due to the fact that they were climbing at such high elevation. And the weather was amazing. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better day to race. Uh, we started out in the morning. It was about 40 degrees. And it started to heat up. I think it probably got upwards of 60, 65 degrees through the course of the day. Sun was shining. It was an absolute beautiful day. There was no wind. I almost think that a lot of the people that were getting into the water at the seven and a half mile mark were looking forward to it. It was a bit of a cool off. And a lot of people that were preparing by wearing wetsuits and that kind of thing had a change of heart and stripped a lot of that off and justifiably so. I just think that it was the kind of day that was perfect for racing, but the mountain just does not have any friends. It was looking to take people out and the way they lined up those obstacles, it just led into a very, very complex and difficult day. Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I think just going back to everything and seeing that just the mountain and then ev- everything in terms of preparation and whatnot, like like you said on the live cast, it seemed like it the perfect day. A week ago it was snowing and then, then it it looked fine. But what did you see just being there? Uh, obviously, you depicted from the finish line. Uh, what do you think people need to do now, just kind of getting into that, to really be prepared for something like this going forward? Well, it's an interesting problem. And I thought about that very problem before we got live. And at the end of the day, we have people that live all over the country, all over the world, that have various climates and environments that they live and train in. And you've got folk that are at sea level, don't really have access to mountains, don't have access to elevation, and they concern themselves about that, and they're, they're always questioning me in respect to how would they prepare. And the thing that you have to try to keep in mind is that your body doesn't care whether it's on a mountain, whether it's climbing, whether it's on flat land. It comes down to the amount of stress that you're throwing at your body. And your body just recognizes stress relative to intensity. How much stress are you taking on and for how long of a period are you having to endure it? It almost doesn't matter where you live or whether you're having access to elevation or not. It comes down to progressively exposing yourself to the type of stress that's going to be consistent with the type of stress you're going to experience in a race. So, for example... What I noticed about the, uh, the extended rigs, for example, what they were referring to as monkey in the middle, which is the twister, the monkey bars and twister, it really comes down not to the complexity of the effort as much as it is the time under tension. When you have a grip that's got to be held with your body weight for that length of time, your forearms and your fingers And just globally, you have so much lactic acid building up in your system that it forces you to let go. And there were few people that were actually able to get through some of these extended hanging situations. They just, it was just too tough for them, especially at the end of the day when you're basically all blown out, your body's fatigued. And then the last thing you have to face before you find the finish line is another complicated rig that you've got to navigate. And it's just a whole lot of, I was finding that the average burpee count for most of the people I spoke with is about 120. 
and it was due to common failures. Failures were not necessarily that they weren't skilled at the particular venue. It was more a function of just the global stress that they were experiencing. So to put it in a little bit more concrete fashion, you know you're going to have to climb. You know you're going to have to climb for a great length of time. You need to replicate that as best you can. And you don't necessarily need a mountain to do it. You can overload your body. You can start to carry heavy things. You could do some short hill repeats and do lots and lots and lots of them. And just put yourself through a lot of stress. And then do it progressively. If you try to do too much too early, it's going to take you out. Your body's not going to recover well. If you try to put these type of workouts back to back too soon, you're just progressively beating your body down. And it's going to be more difficult to see the adaptations that you're looking for. But really, at the end of the day, the, the killer in all of this has to do with the global stress that most people were experiencing. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. I, I would almost venture to say the, 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 the simulation of obstacle racing in terms of your training, such as your hill repeats, and then maybe having you know some sort of pull exercise so you're taxing your grip, and then also paying attention to heart rate, just because that is such a, such a key cog in terms of being able to manage that and then being able to understand that and, and train like that, because ultimately if you have that aspect in your training and you understand the volume that you're putting on your body, when you come, when it comes to the race and you're like that, you just have that feeling and it's a little more comforting going through a monkey in the middle, so to say, or that rig when you've done it kind of fatigued or very fatigued, uh, then, you know, kind of Tahoe being your first time experiencing something like that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the idea of monitoring your heart rate because your heart rate is probably the best indicator of the stress that's going through your body. And when your heart rate starts coming back down, it's an indicator that you're probably better prepared to take on whatever it is that you're facing. That's not always the case. I mean, when you stress tendons and ligaments, things like this, your heart rate's not going to show it. But from a standpoint of just the global stress on your body, your heart rate's a pretty good indicator. So we were getting into this beforehand in regards to base training and how base training would kind of be a, a key indicator in terms of getting into these races and really helping you out, especially when these efforts are long, such as Tahoe. Well, I, I got to tell you, the thing that struck me is the athletes that had a tremendous amount of base running in their history were the ones that are going to shine. You look at what Cody Moat did to Killian in that race. And Killian, has, he's no uh, stranger to volume. He puts in a lot of work. But Cody Moat is a, a mountain running champion. And he showed it. You know, Here's a guy 40 years old, and I don't know if you saw the live feed, but he screamed up past Killian and there was no answer. There was not a thing that he could do about it. And here's a guy that puts in a lot of running. You look at Rhea Koble, who's known to put in a tremendous amount of work week after week after week. She performed really well on Saturday and came back on Sunday and took the win for the same distance. Back-to-back -back beasts in a weekend. you got to know that the comfort level, being under that type of stress for that length of time, requires that you've had history with it. And... I've talked to people that they don't get past 20 miles of running in a week. 
and then they're going to expect themselves to handle 17 miles of mountain running at altitude. That's just, that's untenable. There's no way your body's going to be able to put up with that. And I don't care how much weight training you do or how much CrossFit you do. If you don't have time on your legs, don't have progressive work in your running skills, it's going to be a problem. The other end of it is the stress that people were taking on their ankles. There was a lot of people straining and, and blowing their ankles out on that course. Now, mind you, the course was pretty complicated, and there was a lot of loose shale. There was a lot of edgy terrain that they had to navigate, and you have to be light on your feet. You have to have good mobility and, and agility while you're running. And again, this is a skill base that re is required. So the day to start preparing for this type of an event is probably the day after you've, com you've completed or found out how difficult it was the first time. Yesterday would have been a good day, <laughs> a good day to start training. And what I mean by training is realize that recovery is a component of your training. So you would have to respect the need for the recovery after the beatdown you took over the weekend. And then allow yourself an allotted amount of recovery. Make sure your body's in good repair. Get back to mobility. Get back to some body work. And then progressively start to consider what is going to be needed to get you in a place to race like this again next year. Now, that makes sense. Now, would you have kind of a a targeted miles per week for someone that let's say they come away from this event. They aren't happy with their results. They, they just got beat up pretty much to your points before. Is there something to strive for, for that athlete? Let's say next year, Tahoe, same distance, same, same kind of protocol. Would you say there's something to target there? Well, there's two things you have to consider. Now, clearly volume is a consideration. You have to be able to put in the volume. Now, in order to be able to put in the volume, the very first thing you need to do, and obviously it's going to sound like a sales pitch coming from me, but the reason I do what I do, and the reason I'm so hyper-focused on what I do, is it's such a preeminent concern. If you don't know how to run properly, you're not going to be able to take on the volume. That's your limiting factor. If you run poorly, you break down. The more volume you put in on bad running form, the sooner you're going to injure yourself. So the people that talk about, oh, I can't get past 25 miles. Well, you can't get past 25 miles because you're biomechanically corrupt when you attempt it. And so that's the limiting factor. And then I've seen people free up their legs because they started to run better. Their economy improves. The cost of work goes down. And their ability to get into greater and greater volume improves. So I don't have a magic number for people globally that they need to achieve. You kind of got to find it yourself, what seems to be what works best for you. For example, in Hunter's case, last year he was upwards of 80 miles a week at altitude. And I thought it was too much. He got right to the edge. He was starting to experience some problems. His IT band started to flare up. As a matter of fact, he had to take a long time off after the World Championships last year simply because his IT band was just irritated as hell. He was in a bad spot. So 80 miles was way too many miles for Hunter. Now, I think the sweet spot for him is about between 50 and 60, where he gets enough volume in to really shine where his running skills are concerned, gives him a chance to really focus on the way he's moving, and it works out pretty well for him. Now, you've got guys that are lighter that can take on a lot more mileage. 
and uh, you got athletes again like Rhea Coble and some of these other athletes that are putting in big volume. You know, they're getting upwards of 80, 90 miles a week and a lot of it on terrain. Their talent allows for it. They can get away with it. Or every time you come home after a run and your knees are talking to you, your shins are talking to you, you know, you're finding problems in your back or your hamstrings are jacked up. It's clearly a problem with the way you're moving. So I think in the off season, the thing you really want to focus on is slowing things down, slow things down well enough that you could start to really hone in on the detail. Make sure that you're doing things right. That way, as you start to build and your progression starts to come up, you could take on more intensity, come away unscathed. You can improve your aerobic potential. And by, say, springtime next year, when the race season comes back around, you could be in a much better place. You could be in a place where you could really start to perform. And I think that's what people don't, don't do. They go right back to doing what they did last year or middle of the season and trying to achieve the type of volume or even exceed the volume that they put on in the middle of the season. And fact of the matter is, is that what they did in the middle of the season that preempted their their work coming into the new season is what was killing them. They call it the, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. You have exactly. to, you got to break it down. You got to break it down and start correcting things. And this, by the way, is the time to do that. I think it also goes into, you know, once you figure that out is training efficiently and effectively, I don't, and you correct me if I'm wrong, please, you don't get benefit out of just going balls to the wall and getting that mileage. You would get more benefit, such as a hill repeat workout, getting that load in, coming back down, getting that heart rate down, and almost letting the data kind of help you dictate the, the load you're putting on your body. That way it leads to just better feeling after workout. You don't feel like you're dying every single time you work out. And then also just kind of better longevity throughout the year. I mean, the year is a long year. Uh, and especially if your season, you know, is filled with a bunch of different races. So the more efficient you could be on training protocol, as well as just getting the mileage in and then slowly building that up rather than just going, going balls to the wall. I, I feel like the better you're going to be. And then, you know, next year you come to Tahoe and if you struggled this year, you're going to feel a lot better. Well, you made a very good point, and I'm going to build on it. The data is talking to you. It's a function of whether you're listening or not. When you realize that what you're trying to achieve essentially are a few things, you want to get that aerobic payback. You want to get that aerobic potential to improve. And if you start to notice that nothing seems to be changing, there's probably something wrong with the recipe. What should occur is you should start to see a progressive reduction in the cost of work relative to your pace, which is an indication that your aerobic potential is improving. If that's not happening, you have to ask yourself some pretty hard questions. Are you putting in enough volume? And if the volume you're putting in is causing problems for you, then you have another hard question to ask yourself. What am I doing with the way I'm running that's causing me to hurt this way? And you can't get to one place without the other. You follow? So you, if you're expecting to see improvements in your aerobic potential, but your efficiency's off, your economy is going to suffer. You're not going to get the volume you're looking for because you're just not doing the right things with the way you're moving. 
And uh, who was it? I think it was talking to Miguel Medina. And he was referring to a Tough Mudder event where they have that thing called Operation. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you basically have this stick that you have to put through a hole and you have to unhook something and and pull it off and put it on something else. I think that's how it goes. And uh, just the the neural acuity that's required to get that done is so perplexing if you're not comfortable with it. And it's it's kind of like that. Um, incidentally, speaking of Miguel, poor Miguel had a just a terrible misfortune in his race. And he was so ready to crush that thing. I was with him most of the day on Saturday. And uh, it was funny because he was so pre-race jittery you know he was he was training well he's got the volume he needed he'd been living at altitude he you know he resides at about 6500 feet he's accustomed to cold weather everything was just lending for him to have a really good race he said i gotta go man i'm gonna go test the spear so he went out and threw the spear 10 for 10 and, and uh the only obstacle he failed going into the race was the spear toss and then he was afflicted by some type of asthma attack up on the mountain, and he had to be brought down off the mountain, and he wasn't able to finish, which was really a tragedy because I think he was running about third place in the middle of the race. That's a shame. I yeah, and I think I was looking at the live tracker, and yeah, he was he was way ahead in terms of just kind of gunning for that podium spot. So it's an unfortunate kind of thing because that's almost like an uncontrollable. You know, there's really nothing you can do if you're him. You have everything up there. It's just. Well, he was shocked. I was in the medical tent with him, and I think the biggest uh, observation I had, what he, was, he was just taken by surprise. He couldn't figure out what the heck happened to him because he felt great. He was feeling great until he was no longer feeling great. And apparently, from what I've heard, and I haven't spoke to him since, but from what I've heard is that uh, he had this asthma attack and something to do with the pollen in the area at that time of the year that he had an aversion to that it just grabbed hold of his lungs and just it just his chest got tight it's almost like he was having a heart attack and he even still tried to fight through it and it didn't go well and then he he basically collapsed i was standing by the or in the village and chris mendoza who was racing came by and I went to give him a high five as he's going by. He grabbed me. He goes, look. He goes, Miguel is in the medical tent. He said, I stood up there with him for 20 minutes waiting for somebody to come get him, which, by the way, sacrificed Chris's race, which, incidentally, my, my hat's off to Chris for, you know, looking at the greater good and realizing that the race was not nearly imp as important as making sure that his friend and his comrade was going to be okay. You know, there again, you just never know. And being prepared for these type of events you just can't discount the importance of all the little intricacies that you face when you're braving a mountain that is busy trying to take you out. That's a tough pill to swallow, yeah. I mean, kudos to Chris for, for doing that and obviously making sure Miguel's okay, but it's just one of those, I, I, it, it's almost, it's, it's just that like one in a hundred, you know, time where everything's great, you know, nothing's wrong, and then the one time it happens and you you said he never had something like that before right no no he's uh he was great i mean he was looking yeah. forward to this race he just stood there going man i hope the weather gets worse 
He kept saying, you know, I, I want it to I want it to be cold, I want it to be wet, I want it to be miserable. Because he figured that that's going to fall right into his wheelhouse. He was so prepared for just things to just, you know, really break down and be ugly so he'd have an edge. But at the end of the day, I don't think it was anything to do with his not being prepared. I don't think it had anything to do with uh, the environment. It just, something just, it just grabbed him. And again, it, it's an oddity. I think that you know, obviously he's going to get some testing done and find out specifically what went wrong. Because his A race is World's Toughest Mudder, which is coming up. So. Oh, yeah. So uh, kind of to get your thoughts, what's your opinions on those that race the Beast and then came right after and race the Ultra Beast? Well, you know me. I don't like seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that you need to do it. Um, if you took it as a training event, if you, you, know, you knew you were going to do both races and you knew that you weren't really going to be on the podium at either event and you're just kind of trying to just take on a beating over the weekend. All right, maybe, but from a standpoint of trying to perform well, you can't go into race number one with a hundred percent knowing in the back of your mind that you're going to do double the race the following day. Uh One of those races are going to suffer and it's just a function of mentally how you prepare or how you, contend with the race that you're facing. So, for example, in Ryan Atkins's mind, you know, he did a, an amazing job in the Beast. He just had some really tough competition. But honestly, I think on the back of his mind, he was probably thinking towards world's toughest mutter. And I really thought that he felt that his focus should be on the longer event. And clearly, it, it bore out for him because he crushed that Ultra Beast I think he finished about 30 minutes ahead of uh, the next uh, con- competitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he he's a work of art. And I, I think to your point, yeah, it's he's doing World's Toughest Mudder and just seeing how well he performed there. And I believe he won last year. I, I think that's got to be on his mind more than anything of just making sure that that, you know, is, is number one in his priority sets. So, By the way, my hat's off to the production uh, company that put together that event because they had like a drive-in movie in the middle of the village where you could sit there in a in a, a, a lawn chair and just watch the whole race unfold on the on the big TV screen. It was amazing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about almost like a drive-in movie. T- if you're old enough to remember that, but a big, 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 big screen. I'd imagine it was probably. Uh, 20 feet tall by 40 feet wide. It was huge. And uh, they, they were given a live feed on that big screen. Yeah, it was funny, too, because Amelia Boone mentioned on Sunday, she's like, the cameramen are the real uh, MVPs because they're running as fast as these guys are in terms of just keeping up with them with a camera on their you know shoulder, just getting the shot. So I think just all around, just seeing the live feed and then also just hearing kind of just the news from everybody it seems like it was really well put together well what's interesting is on my flight home the fellow sitting next to me was one of the camera guys oh okay yeah so we had a, a lot of opportunity to talk about the race and what we thought about it and you know the whole production with nbc and what their plans are for the future and it was kind of an in- insightful conversation but one of the things that he told me that i thought was pretty interesting was that their live feed had like 1.7 million downloads during the Beast event. 
Wow. Yeah, on the live feed for Facebook, which is pretty amazing. And that's the kind of thing that we need. We need to get that type of media attention, and they need to see that type of return on their investment so that they're going to continue to cover these events in the future, which is going to lend to better paydays to the athletes, and then which is going to promote more athletic participation. You're going to get guys coming from various sports that are going to start looking at this more seriously. And I think that that's what's going to be the future of the sport. You've got to get that media coverage, and they got to stay uh, invested in it, feeling like there's going to be the type of return they're looking for. I think the live feeds have been just very welcome throughout the year. I think they've done a pretty good job with the NBC races and then looking at the Spartan, just the beast, and then they, the team race. I think just, yeah, to your point, if the sport's going to keep growing, these are the type of things to just get the, the casual person more, more interested in, in obstacle course racing and then obviously to participate and then grow the numbers. Yep. So let's do this. Let's kind of wrap this up with some deal points that I think people and whatever you might want to add should okay. fo focus on over the next few months and leading up to the next big race that they intend to participate in. Because Absolutely. keep in mind that there's a lot of people still looking at OCR World Championships. And then, of course, there's people that are attending to go into Vegas for the uh, World Toughest. Yeah, exactly. And so the things that I saw that I think need to be addressed are, for example, clearly all this ankle carnage that we were seeing, people jacking their ankles up. You have to work on these very specific mobility drills to ensure that you have functional range of motion in your ankles, functional strength in your feet. I'm talking about taking the time to address that mobility and that ankle stability and that foot strength. If you don't do that, you're going to run into problems. So it's not that complex a situation. You could spend five to 10 minutes every morning or even before you go to bed, working on making sure you have good range of motion. If you're feeling tension in your Achilles, your calf, at any time of the day, after a workout, before a workout, that's a signal that there's a tension required. And then, Rich, just to add, you know, going back to way, a, a few discussions ago with Irene, I mean, barefoot, you know, minimalist, focusing, just looking at the whole spectrum of things, you know, what shoes are you wearing, things like that, because those could be detrimental as well as then going in, into the gate discussion of if you're heel striking or not, because if you are going to increase the volume over the off season, if you are going to work on these things, those two things in itself could be the make or break type of things, even if you have everything else uh, set in stone. Right. Now, to that point, a lot of people I talk to will ask me what kind of shoe they should wear. And they're trying to migrate to a zero-drop shoe, but they feel that there's a limitation in their ability to get there because they're tight in the calf and the Achilles. Well, that's a pretty good indication. If you can't get off of an 8-millimeter drop because your Achilles and your calf or your plantar fascia are complaining, that's testament that there's something wrong. You need mm -hmm. to improve that range of motion. And... When you start to focus and address that, you'll start to notice you're going to get more liberty and being able to bring your foot closer to the ground. It's not a function of trying to put an arch support in or trying to put cushion under your foot. You need to get your foot 
to a place where it functions as it's naturally designed to do. And the other thing that I saw was a lot of people were cramping up. I'm talking about just crippled up trying to come across the finish line. And again, clearly that's a lot of fatigue, that's glycogen depletion, but at the same token, there's probably issues with electrolyte imbalances. Yes. And if you're not testing the type of feeding strategy that you're planning to use going into a race, or if you go into the race just winging it because you're not really sure what to do, maybe your friend says you need to eat a gel every now and then, or you, you're trying something new and you've not had a chance to test it, the outcome is you're going to come across that line in a hump. You're going to be in a bad, bad place. And I have to tell you, a lot of the clients that I work with, and I had a lot of people racing over the course of the weekend, just a few that I, I care to mention, Callie, young, new to the sport, she finished uh, 31st overall in the, the Beast on Saturday in the Elite Heat. And we reined her back for the last three weeks because she was nursing a, a, an injury on her foot. So her volume was really pretty low, but we still addressed the the event by kind of dodging the issue she was having in her foot by training around it with various types of modalities she could support. I had her on a step mill for hours on end carrying heavy weight, uh, which was not stressing her injury. And she was able to keep her aerobic potential high and the strength in her legs high. And she came through that race unscathed. And we intended to hold her back so that she would not uh, further the injury because we're looking towards the future. We're looking at OCR World Championships. And she did amazing. And she came across the, the finish line and was unscathed. She looked great. She, her feeding strategy was on point. Everything came together for her. Another uh, fellow that I work with, Ryan Ingram, who did really well in the Ultra Beast, crushed his previous time and just kind of marched right through that thing and was just fine. His feeding strategy on point, never cramped up, had pretty much everything just working as best it could. So obviously enough, the, the key here is making sure that you keep the feeding strategies proper. You make sure that you're keeping the hydration and the electrolyte balances on check and making sure that functionally your body is prepared for, for the things that you need to do. And again, of course, to kick a dead horse, make sure that your running ability is on point. Use a heart rate monitor to determine whether things are working or not working. And it doesn't have to be a very complicated process. And I've said it before, I'll, I'll say it one more time. If you simply identify what your aerobic threshold is, where you're aerobic versus not being aerobic any longer. And the easiest way to do that that I know of without having been tested is to subtract your age from 180, maybe add 10 points if you're in pretty decent repair, meaning that you've been able to compete throughout the season without any injuries and you're putting in good volume. You're probably good for another 10 beats. So 180 minus your age plus 10 beats, that's about the top end of your aerobic potential. And then use that as a guide when you're out there competing or when you're out there training to see whether in fact there's improvements in the cost of work relative to your pace. So for example, if uh, let's say that your threshold heart rate is 150 beats per minute and you're able to run say uh, a 10K at let's just call it nine minute mile pace without exceeding that 150 beats per minute and then through training and weeks out 
say five, six weeks out, you start noticing that you're able to run an eight minute mile without exceeding 150 beats per minute, then clearly your aerobic potential has improved. But if you don't know that, you don't know what the mechanism is that's helping you to improve or not, then you're kind of lost. So absolutely make sure that you're data collecting and you're looking at the information very carefully and use that information to determine how your training is going to unfold as you lead into the next uh, race season. Well, I can tell you uh, a story firsthand in regards to when we sat down in November and looked at that. Uh, I have probably lost per, per mile about 50 seconds per mile just through the course of the year of aerobic training, focusing on getting to near that threshold, but at the same time keeping the cadence everything sound and it makes sense it works it's effective and what you're going to find is that when you start to have these anaerobic or higher efforts you're going to be able to sustain them or go faster just because of a lot of the base training that you've put in throughout the year well i i gotta tell you all through the weekend i had people coming up to me at tahoe and thanking me for the information we provide on the podcast and a lot of them I've never communicated with other than through this podcast where we've offered them up some advice and they took it to heart and they found that their ability to train and race has improved, which is really cool. I mean, I get chicken skin. I, my, my hair stands up on my arms when I have somebody walk up and say, hey, <laughs> hey say thank you, man. I, I just dropped 10 minutes from my 10K time doing nothing more than following the advice you provided on the podcast. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It, it might sound repetitive to some, but at the same time, if you're following it, it's going to work. It, it, it just, especially if you're one that is just not seeing the improvements is, to your point, the definition of insanity, trying to do the same thing and expecting different results. It's just not going to happen. Right. It's not. Well, while, while we're on that point, let me ask you, and you know me, I pay attention whether you think I do or don't. I, I, I know you pay attention. <laughs> you had mentioned in an earlier podcast that because of your occupation, you have a lot of liberty with travel because mm -hmm. you're stocking up a lot of points. Mm -hmm. you, you need to drag your butt to one of those clinics we're doing in uh, the East Coast. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I, I, I said about New Jersey, unfortunately, the one that because I think that would almost be like about 45 minutes from where my family is. I'm doing a marathon that day. Uh, but the Philly one, I, I, I will try to make. So Well, that's, um, that's uh, matter of fact, if you're in the neighborhood, we intend to be doing some training during the week because I'm not going back home. I'm not going to okay. fly all the way back to the West Coast and then come back the following week. I'm just going to stay there. And knowing that, uh, we've decided that we're going to try to throw in some extra training during the week. We haven't got it nailed down yet, but we're looking to see whether we can find a venue where the people that have participated in the clinic can participate in some extra training to make sure that this information catches hold. Because I'm an opportunist. If I'm going to be in the area, you know, I might as well make as much of it as we possibly can. Is that the first time you're, I know you, you've done a bunch of clinics in Vermont, but is that the first time you're, you're doing a clinics kind of in the, the Northeast Metroplex? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I don't think it's going to be the last time either, because we typically... Once we've been somewhere and we've had people had a chance to taste, feel, and, and experience the event in an area, then usually the, the repeat business is, is really pretty profound. And I had a lot of people during the weekend accosting me to come to their neck of the woods 
And they're like, hey, you ever going to come to Montana? Hey, you ever going to come to, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, look, work it Get out. Get some people. Yeah, work it out. We'll come. So on that note, the last thing I want to share is that we're going to start scheduling the 2018 calendar. And I'm going to start out by putting out about four events here in Camarillo. It's funny because all over the weekend I was talking about the most optimal situation you could experience to get the most out of that, that whole training would be to come out here because that means testing occurs in my lab, which means I have the home court advantage. I've got my tools. I've got my badass treadmill that does all kinds of fancy tricks. I've got a really cool venue for the trail running that I know and it's been tried and proven. We've, we've used it several times, so we know how to get a really decent workout and really get the most bang for your buck. So we're going we're gonna to schedule four events right from January right into the spring, early summer. We're going to probably put one out every two months, and they're going to be posted. Probably in the next couple of days, I'll have them up. And... Uh, it's important that people that are listening that are interested in these events, if you wait to the last minute, let me tell you what happens. We shut down the event. You can't wait. If you, I don't want to do a late fee. I don't, I don't want to do that to people. But I'll tell you, if it looks like it's not going to go down the way we'd like it to, we just don't do it. That's what's happening, incidentally, to San Francisco. I had, I had about six or seven people come up to me over the weekend and say, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing San Francisco. I said, well, did you register? And I knew the answer. I knew the answer because we didn't have any registration so far. They, uh, they're like, uh, no, I was going to wait. I said, well, guess what? We're not coming. And they're like, what do you mean you're not coming? I said, what do you mean you didn't register? <laughs> you know, it's like it's that type of thing. You can't do it. The complexity of what we're doing, just the expenses associated with the travel. It's a small group of people. We're not trying to serve 500 or 1,000 people. We're not going to get more than 20 people for these events. And so it's critical that the people that are going to attend jump on registration as quickly as possible. That way we know that things go well. Like Jersey. Jersey and Philadelphia, these guys are great. Those events aren't even scheduled till December. And we sold those out within 30 hours. I love that. And thank you, Spartan 4.0, for putting that together for us. That was amazing. But anyway, I'm done ranting in that respect. But four events for sure coming up in my neck of the woods. Amazing, amazing stuff. People that have been to my events before, alumni, generally what I try to do is make a special consideration for them one way or the other. You might want to make one of those too, Sean. I know. I, I don't want to miss out, you know. Uh, I don't want to pay that late fee. So, <laughs> Well, the late <laughs> fee is maybe you got to bring me a bottle of, like, uh, I don't know, something older than 18 years old. It's got to be legal age. 18-year-old scotch. Now, now you got me uh, having the burning question. Did anybody give you a bottle of scotch at Tahoe? No. Well, I take that back. I shared, I brought a bottle to share with my host that I stayed with. And one of my hosts, Scott Lesser, brought a bottle because he knew I was coming. And uh, he and I, and actually I got Greg Yoakum to, to kick in and have a little bit to drink. And he doesn't drink scotch. My dear friend and brother from another mother, Steve Hammond, showed up. And I probably shouldn't tell people this, but he probably doesn't care. You know, Steve and I got together sat was it, Saturday night, yeah. And it was late. He worked the course all day on Saturday. He was tuckered out, got a hold of me late, said, look, I want to stop in, at least say hello, maybe, you know, have a nip with you. And so he and I 
sat down and, and uh, had a little scotch together. And he got up in the morning, and I think he finished in uh, top eight, right, for the Ultra Beast? He was definitely top ten, so yeah, that's yeah. just – yeah. Scotch wins Scotch wins races, I guess. Yeah, it does. And by the way, in- interestingly enough, Greg Yoakum, who has never drank scotch before, is a little nervous about it. He woke up in the morning, first thing he said to me was, You know, you're right. He goes, I don't even have a headache or anything. He goes, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I said, Yeah, well, you drink those silly drinks, man. You're putting sugary crap in your body. It's terrible for you. It's like the whole tequila thing where it's like if you get the 100% blue agave tequila, you just feel amazing. But if, you know, obviously you get the, the 5 to $20 stuff, you're going to have a headache of, you know, Neverland. So That's not even tequila. It's like turpentine. <laughs> it's, 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 it's just some substance you shouldn't be putting in your body, essentially. No, so. sure not. Well, look, uh, once again, Sean, we, we, we had a chance to, to talk shop. I don't know what we're going to do next week. Hopefully we get somebody on that we can chat with and we'll get away from just kind of ranting and let somebody else do it. Well, no, it was fun. Uh, I think just hearing the stories from Tahoe, seeing the live feed, congrats to Cody for winning as well as Lindsay for winning for the woman. And then, yeah, uh, I'm just glad that you had a great weekend. And more than anything, just hope everybody is recovering safely. And if you're racing world championships in two weeks, best of luck. Yeah, by the way, I don't want to discount the performance of the athletes in that either of the events. I mean, just a tremendous competition. These guys are going out balls to the wall with 17 miles of mountain and just treacherous obstacles, and they just they, they beat that thing down. So absolutely, Cody Moat, nobody knew really that he was going to be there, and out of nowhere, man, like a shot out of a cannon, he, he tore that thing up. So... I think he uh, he humbled a lot of guys uh, on Saturday. Yeah, congratulations to those guys and the ladies. Just a tremendous competition all around. And all those folks that competed. And all those folks that came up and said hello to me, I really appreciate you reaching out and you know having a few words with me and letting me know that you're out there and that you're listening. I, I really love that. So anyway, let's shut this puppy down. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.